Hey folks, my apologies for missing last week, for getting this week's short show out late, and for, as you can probably hear, taping this show on a little pocket audio recorder that's really meant for dictation. I'm still in Tennessee, where my folks are, without much access to the internet, or to any of my normal equipment, and honestly, as I'm recording this, I'm just hoping I'll be able to coax FileZilla into uploading it to the server. When I'm back in Mexico, which will be by the end of this weekend, I'll be able to re-record this on an actual mic, and hopefully I'll be able to grind out another essay during this week to have ready for you by next Monday. SFD's listening numbers took a little unexpected jump recently, so either our audience grew by about 30%, or one of you has been clicking the button a whole lot. Either way, I appreciate the good work you've been doing spreading the word, especially Pincher Bembis from the website, and V, Neil Haskins, and Terry Anderson, who are my three most recent supporters on Patreon, where we're up to $52 a month. Which, all told, isn't much, but in Mexico, isn't nothing either. Speaking of Patreon, too, I'll be working on and putting out the September news show as soon as I'm back in the office down there in Guadalajara, so if you've been wondering about maybe checking out our Patreon-exclusive content, maybe give it a try for a month once that show is up. The last piece of show news is that my good friend and fearless journalist Maya Jabegli, who works for Johns Franz Press out of Beirut, and who's soon to release her own podcast, will be joining me in the coming weeks for a freewheeling conversation about what it is exactly that makes us Americans so fascinated by Vietnam. And that is going to be great. All right, more than enough. I'm John Coombs. We're talking about collapse, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. Yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.
Like I said a couple of shows back, I was traveling these past two weeks out west, subbing in for my uncle on my dad's annual fishing trip. And while we were out there, halfway across South Dakota and getting more frequent with every mile, we started seeing these fences along the highway. Or not along the highway exactly, but near it and at an angle, sloped back towards the road like they'd been tipped by a strong wind. When I asked Ed what the hell these were, he being a much more western hand than I, he told me that they were snow fences, that they make sure that the drifts build up away from the highway, and if everything works right, that they actually help to keep the snow off it entirely, since the drifts themselves work like levees against the blow. I had a long time to stare out the windows of those fences, and as I did, I began to think about something, an idea that started taking shape as we passed Mount Rushmore, and then only really hinted at coming together as we were listening to the news about Houston and Harvey, by way of Pod Save America, coming into Dutch John, which is a place both right next to the Flaming Gorge Dam and nowhere at all. And what struck me then on that dusty desert highway was how vulnerable all of our systems are to collapse, and how easy it would be not to see it at all until it was already happening. Before we ever made it out to Dutch John, though, Dad and I spent a couple of days in West Yellowstone, which is a town that sits at the west entrance of the park, as you could probably figure out. I hadn't been to an American National Park in a long time, and the, I don't know, the thoroughness surprised me. We saw the corners of the park, both some of the most and some of the least traveled, but we couldn't find a place without good, clear signage, without some access to waste disposal and toilets of some kind. Without, I guess, I'm saying, signs of the care and maintenance of the park service. Add to that the hilltop stations, the TP in every outhouse, and even a little park newspaper. All of which might seem like par for the course to you, but like I said, it had been a while since I'd visited a park in the U.S. And we saw the same kind of thing all across the West. Isolated landmarks or bits of geography just as well labeled and maintained as Yellowstone, even without any permanent ranger presence right down to the Dripping Springs campground in Dutch John, which came complete with very specific fire safety instructions and fire pits that had been constructed specifically to make it tough for sparks to hop out and into the dry desert grasses all around. As I understand it, that's just the quality that our park service works toward as a rule, but it's far from a given or anything like a global norm. Those of you who have been following me long enough know that I worked in a Mexican national park during my time in the Peace Corps and I saw a different kind of model in operation there. Mexico's been going through some economic hardship for the last few years, and their park service hasn't been a priority. Its budget was cut in half twice in my time there, and in the office I worked out of, sometimes we couldn't pay the power bill. Our admin guy was constantly begging our landlord for more time, and sometimes work just didn't get done because we couldn't afford gas to reach the communities we were supposed to be serving. I don't want to bag on the park service down there because they move mountains despite those hardships. But what all of that did show me was how much management and logistical effort has to go into what I saw out west. Those trail signs, for instance. You have no idea how fast the sun bleaches those things and how much work keeping them clear and legible actually entails. Not to mention the number of people hiking those remote trails and checking on them. Until I'd gone to Mexico, all that stuff in Yellowstone would have been invisible to me. It's not something special or surprising, but in a very American way of thinking, it's how the world ought to be. As if signs and well-engineered trails belong out in the woods. And it was the same with those snow fences. There's so much that goes into those things. Somebody has to decide to put them up in the first place, to appropriate money for them. Somebody has to know where and how to position them, 
People have to be hired to construct them, more to place them, check them, maintain them. And if everything works right, the highway stays open through the winter, and you never even have to notice that they're there at all. And not just the snow fences, but the highways themselves. They're full extent. They're on and off ramps. All their signage, the bridges they run over and under, the simple, ignorable fact that they work, that you can get on and off them anywhere in the United States without ever having to wonder how they came to be or how they stay that way, is itself evidence of a massive system working away, only visible, like the tip of an iceberg, when they put out the cones or when the system goes down. And two things that began to strike me as we drove farther and farther west, out of the plains and into the mountains, were both the sheer scale of the maintenance that all our big infrastructure requires, and that, when it fails, the effects thereof are way more disastrous than if there'd never been anything built there at all. Let me take those things one at a time. What I mean by that latter point is maybe counterintuitive. But say you've got a trucking company, like in the 1940s and 1950s. The interstate system hasn't been built yet, and your trucks move goods on state and county roads, which are there, but maybe they're not direct and maybe they're not that good. You're producing, to keep this example simple, 10 units of value. Now, good old Ike gets the interstates built, and your trucks can go faster and travel more directly, and what's more, they can be bigger. Now, with basically the same business, you're creating 20 units of value. The federal government's investment in infrastructure allows that to happen. But, and if you can imagine the interstate system failing as a whole, you'd be worse off than if it had never been constructed at all. You're stuck with a bunch of trucks you can't use and orders that you can't fill. Now this effect's way easier to see when you get away from roads. Imagine catastrophic power failures in big cities or internet outages basically anywhere. These are things that destroy value. As far as the second thing, the scale of maintenance, I've mentioned a few times on the show that my dad spent his life working in manufacturing for General Motors. And during that time, he came to learn and implement a system, or even a philosophy, which is known as lean, like thin, that works to eliminate waste. And there are a lot of different aspects of lean manufacturing, but one of them is that you aim to always be improving your process. Never, ever do you rest on your laurels. And at first that might sound at least somewhat radical. Why fix what isn't, for the moment, broken? But what becomes clear, especially as I've learned in a car plant, is that you can't build a system that just works, that's permanently stable. Machines wear, grime builds up, bad habits form, people get complacent. And if you aren't aggressively looking at how to improve and hunting down what might be going wrong, an assembly line that was to all appearances fine one day can go into total breakdown the next. And this is all more or less obviously true of infrastructure. Those of you who live far north enough to experience a freeze-thaw cycle know that no matter how well you build a road, the day that you finish laying it is the day it starts breaking down. And while that example for the most part applies to potholes, think about bridges or dams. A little bit of rust gets in under the paint, or a hairline crack appears below the water, and unless you're looking closely, they seem like they're working fine, right up until they collapse or burst. And what may be less obvious is that all of the same concerns about upkeep also apply to human infrastructure. In this case, the people behind the highways and roads. Because while checklists and procedures might be able to keep things running under normal conditions, you need talented, dynamic people at their posts when the system comes under stress. You can institutionalize the schedule for checking the dams, 
for putting up those snow fences, but when the blizzard of the century comes through, or when a 55-car pileup puts a torch to your plans, you have to have enough and good enough people to manage that crisis. By virtue of being trapped in a truck together for days on end, I finally got my pop to listen to a few episodes of Pod Save America, and we were just getting to the Flaming Gorge out in Utah when we heard this. Can I just make one other point, which is that, you know, right now I think the focus is rightly on the, the rescue effort and taking care of people there, but policy matters and budgets matter. And the administration has recommended cutting FEMA programs by like $667 million. They've also proposed a 16% cut to the overall budget and a 32% to the office, uh, the NOAA budget and the Office of Oceanic and Atmospheric Research. So like these are relevant programs that help us anticipate and manage and then solve these problems. That's why government matters. Also, also yeah. the dams were built and I think the 30s or 40s, and we haven't had a significant inf- investment in the infrastructure of this country in half a century, and we're coasting on the roads, bridges, rail lines, and airports of another generation, and it's 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 not going to last. I was going to make a more immediate point, which is a couple weeks ago, Trump reversed the Obama-era federal flood protection standard, which would have required federally funded infrastructure to be built to withstand extreme flooding and higher sea levels. Why? <laughs> Just You know why? Because Obama put it into place, right. and everything he does is to so... oppose Obama and reverse what he does. And it was no coincidence that I started thinking about crises either. We were traveling in late August and early September, which is when Harvey was dumping a trillion or so gallons on South Texas. And two things kept occurring to me over and over. The first was that if what had happened with Harvey had happened anywhere a little less prepared than the U.S., the death toll would have been enormous. And second, that if Donald Trump hadn't appointed a competent FEMA director, the way he's failed to appoint or appointed incompetent, unqualified people to head other agencies and entire cabinet departments like education or HUD, things might well have been worse. And that, finally, is when I started thinking about what I mentioned at the start of this episode. Collapse. Imagine for me now, a world in which we keep doing exactly what we have been doing. We put money into infrastructure, but never enough and never regularly enough. And what's more, into the visible stuff. Local roads, say, versus bridges and dams and power plants and transformers. And at the same time, we keep letting our human infrastructure slip, also hiring fewer people than we really need, and never offering enough money to make sure that the ones that we do bring on are the best. Finally, whether you believe it's the result of anthropogenic climate change or not, imagine that we keep experiencing the extreme weather that's become more and more the norm over the last decade or two. I don't think it's too hard to imagine, if you've already got all that in your head, a big storm leading to small breakdowns. And it shouldn't be too hard from there to see the way a cascade of smaller breakdowns could lead to a real and catastrophic collapse of the infrastructure and the systems that permit and sustain our highly ordered and productive way of life. Let me paint a sensational picture for you. Imagine a storm for me. A storm like Harvey. One that dumps rain down on the land beyond all reasonable limits. And imagine that it happens inland, a little bit further from the coast. FEMA and the rest of the federal government of this imagined future is still able to handle what's going on, just like it's handling what happened with Harvey, and what, even as I write this, is happening with Irma. Maybe because of the ongoing demands of a changing climate and extreme weather, together with the neglect of the White House and the Congress for their budget and their personnel, maybe FEMA is only just handling things, but they're handling all the same. 
The local cops in the stadies are doing their best, and maybe the people higher up know how tenuous things are, but from outside it seems like everything's running the way it should. People are getting evacuated from flood zones, police are limiting looting and keeping order, hospital generators are getting emergency supplies of gas, and the authorities, even if they can't keep every road and bridge open, are at least keeping people off the ones that might be dangerous. Now imagine that somewhere in the watershed that this storm is dumping into, that there is a dam. It doesn't have to be a huge dam, like Hoover, but it's got to have a sizable reservoir behind it. And you don't need to imagine that there's a big crack in this dam, just that the state agency or the Army Corps of Engineers hasn't had the cash or the people to keep it in tip-top shape. That maybe its spillway has seen a little too much erosion. That maybe when this storm fills the reservoir, the water starts finding its way around. And when it does, it takes a little bit of earth with it and a little more, and before long the reservoir and the trillion gallons that this storm has dumped on the earth are all pouring down river, and doubling or tripling the size of the disaster area. Imagine that maybe this, finally, is the limit of FEMA's abilities. They just don't have the money or the trained staff to deal with anything of this scale. Not to mention the wildfires and drought and another storm or two that are happening elsewhere at the same time. People in the flood zone below the dam hadn't even thought about evacuating, and now, rather than the modest kind of numbers of killed and injured like we had with Harvey, we've got something that looks a lot more like what you'd see out of Haiti or Bangladesh. And with the dam gone, power to the region goes out along with communications, and the disaster area downriver is not only much more serious, it's in the dark. Phones aren't working, neither is the internet, roads are washed out, bridges are carried away by debris. And for a good bit, people are on their own. What happens then? That's anybody's guess. It may be that with FEMA and state and local resources on the ropes, they send in the troops and everything turns out alright after a brief period of confusion. And it may be that they send in the troops, but without disaster recovery people to manage them, there's a little bit more shooting of looters than anybody would like, but otherwise things turn out alright, relatively speaking. Or it could be that in the absence of a strong human infrastructure, without capable, experienced people to direct them in the art of disaster recovery, even sending in the troops won't be the panacea that we imagine it to be. And it may be that the breakdown of that dam precipitates the kind of crisis we imagine only happens in more southerly and browner countries, with floodwater drowning and spreading disease and effectively wiping communities off the map because of the lack of disaster relief. It may be that the darker elements in our society that are always waiting for their moment to emerge, like the heavily armed pseudo-fascist self-described Proud Boys who traveled down to Harvey-affected Houston to protect property from looters, see just this kind of disaster as their opportunity to prove their worth and impose a little order on their less real American neighbors. It could be that nothing particularly awful, besides the storm and flood themselves, happens. And it could be that everything you could imagine happens. What you can be sure of is that the weather is going to keep happening, and that if we keep doing the kinds of things that the Trump administration is doing, sooner or later we're going to end up with a situation very much like that one. And while imagining the collapse of something as dramatic as a dam gives us the most immediately compelling kind of crisis, all infrastructure, and to some extent most systems work that way, everything looks fine until it suddenly, drastically, is not. Even after our imagined disaster, even if it went as badly as it could have, life in the U.S., and even, eventually, life in the affected area would continue as it had before. But at a certain point, because of the way that failed infrastructure is worse than no or less or even less complicated infrastructure, at a certain point you'll hit break-even, 
At a certain point, we stop maintaining those highways and those levees. Nobody plans or builds or appropriates for those snow fences, and the passes close for the winter. I realize that a lot of what I write for these short shows is pretty doom and gloom, and more than that, pretty sensational. It's something pretty well known in history that whenever a culture gets an idea of what the human endgame might be, and in the past this has mostly been a religious thing, so think of the Christian apocalypse, people tend to think that they'll get to see it. The earliest Christians, the ones who knew Christ himself, had to begin rewriting and refining their doctrine when they realized, as they aged and started dying off, that Jesus wasn't going to be doing his comeback tour during their lifetimes. In the run-up to 1000 AD, this kind of feeling, which we call millenarian, worked up to a fever pitch again, and practically everybody in Europe in that century thought they'd be seeing the end times. Our fascination with what was a pretty low-key computing problem in the run-up to Y2K and the bevy of religious leaders who keep predicting and re-predicting the rapture, along with the way that way too many of us got excited for some sort of Mayan end of the world in 2012, all of these are outgrowths of what's apparently a very natural human inclination to believe that you might be part of the last human generation. But I think that those of us who are my age might be the first people since the Black Death swept across Europe, or European imported smallpox wiped out 90% of the native population of the Americas, to be actually staring down the barrel of a credible threat. At the same time that Donald Trump and his rabid white nationalist base have heralded a much more drastic political decline in the United States than most of us thought was afoot just a couple of years ago, we're learning almost by the month that our best predictions for the extent and the effects of climate change were too conservative by far. Even forgetting the resource conflicts and mass migrations that a warming world are going to create beyond our borders, climate change is going to blow Harvey and Irma away here in the U.S. We're going to be seeing extreme weather, sure, but also droughts and food shortages. Temperatures in the south that make any kind of farming or work that you do outside the confines of an air-conditioned harvester or office literally unlivable. We're going to see species die-offs and the entrance of diseases like malaria and dengue and the kind of hemorrhagic fevers that we thought you had to work on the Panama Canal to contract as warmer temperatures allow mosquitoes and their other carriers to come farther north. All of that would stretch us to our limits in the best of times. But we live in an insane age, one in which Miami floods literally every day because the ocean is higher now than when they built the city. But Florida State employees are prevented by official policy from mentioning climate change in their documents. Half of our population, because of political indoctrination on the part of the Republican Party and right-wing media, are literally the only group of people in the entire world who won't even admit the existence of the greatest threat ever to face the human race entire. And as all that's going on, as all of that is bearing down on us, we've got a man like Donald Trump running the show, appointing people to real jobs, running real agencies that might at some point save or lose hundreds or thousands of lives, and doing what seems like his level best to make sure that whatever's coming it catches us off guard and unprepared. So sure, this show has been a little bit sensational, a little bit dark, and maybe that's uncalled for. It may be that the masters of the universe over in Silicon Valley, or the political renaissance that grows up in this country after and as a result of the Trump presidency, head all of our problems off at the pass. Maybe they invent something to strip carbon out of the air, or put climate refugees to work in the gig economy. Maybe whatever new John Kennedy emerges out of the wreckage of this administration takes world leadership on energy and climate and heals our racial and political divides at home 
and we and the world march into the rest of the 21st century and the utopic future we'd so diligently earned. Maybe all that'll happen, sure. But if you've been paying attention for the last few months, for the last few years, for the last few decades, I don't know that you'd think that it looks that way. And it sure does not to me. I'm John Coombs, and for a little while longer, this is Safe for Democracy.